had an opportunity to visit with uh, Gertrude and Judy McHugh this week. We have been uh, praying for Gertrude in the loss of uh, Harold, her husband, and we received a thank you note that I'll read to you from them. Uh, words, it says, Grace Baptist Church family, words cannot express the sincere gratitude we have for your for you and your praying, support, and generosity. Your kindness provided comfort to our family during this very difficult time. We are truly blessed to be a part of this wonderful congregation. Sincerely, the McHugh family. I was talking to Judy this week, and she said, you know, I knew we had a good church, and I was a part of a good church. I found out through the loss of my father and the support that the congregation was to us that we are a part of a great church. And uh, she said, you just cannot understand how kind the church has been to us and how we have felt that uh, love from the congregation. So I pass that uh, word of praise on to you and uh, with my uh, complete agreement. So, um, A couple of years ago, I learned that if you want to have happier relationships and be more satisfied in your career, and if you just want to be more content with your life, that all you need to do is lower your expectations. Um, it, was, it was an article that I read in the newspaper. It said that one of the reasons that people are unhappily married or unsatisfactorily employed is that they expect too much or they demand too much from their job or from their relationship. You set yourself up for disappointment by hoping for too much. Um, you, you know what that's like. You know what that's like if you've ever been on vacation before. Uh, you, you spend several weeks planning it. Maybe even now you've already had to go into your boss's office and write on the calendar for this year when you want to go on vacation. And you, you saved for it. You planned for it. You thought about it. Um, and then you went on vacation. Was it as good as it, you had hoped that it would be? Uh, two summers ago, Kathy and I went away for uh, a, a few days. It was just the two of us, and we have different memories about that trip. I planned everything. I spent weeks and months getting ready, and I wanted to do things that I knew she would really like to do. Um, she had no expectations for the vacation, uh, and it surpassed all of them. It was great. She had a wonderful time. I expected it to be heaven on earth, and it wasn't bad. Uh, you can set yourself up for disappointment by hoping for too much. But think about with me, though, for a few minutes about what it's like if that sense of disappointment sinks into your spiritual life. Is anybody here in that condition today that, that, that things just aren't working out the way you thought they should since you're a follower of Christ I mean, the Bible promises a lot, doesn't it? It promises peace and joy and comfort and purpose. And, and maybe these qualities aren't that dominant in your life. And things just aren't working out the way you expected. Every believer, I think, goes through a period like that. Uh, this week I read about a pastor and his frustration with a hymn that we used to sing in my church growing up. We, we haven't sung it here in a while for the reason I'm going to explain, but it's the song at the cross. And the verses are great. I think the verses were written by Isaac Watts, maybe. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? It goes on. Well, might the sin in, in uh, darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ the mighty Maker died for man the creature's sin. It's a beautiful truth. And then comes the chorus. 
at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. Okay, it was there by faith. I received my sight. Good. And now I am happy all the day. Happy. Hmm. Maybe your spiritual life feels more like the weather yesterday than it does happy. Did you look out your window yesterday? It was miserable, wasn't it? Drizzle all day, uh, cloudy, um, patches of ice scattered across the road. Everything was just a gray, slushy mess. Uh, some of you remember, uh, today is, uh, uh, maybe you've seen some of the coverage devoted to Ronald Reagan's 100th birthday. He would turn 100 today. Some of you remember a speech that was pivotal in his presidential election, not a speech that he uh, made, but a speech that Jimmy Carter made before uh, the election of 1980. It was, it was called the malaise speech. Jimmy Carter never used the word malaise in the speech But he talked about the problems that the country was facing and all the unpleasant solutions to them. And a lot of people attribute Ronald Reagan's victory in 1980 to his 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 optimism, the contrast between Jimmy Carter's malaise and Ronald Reagan's uh, brightness as he looked toward the future. I wonder if anybody here this morning is experiencing spiritual malaise. There are signs, there are signs of spiritual malaise. Maybe uh, participating in worship is a struggle. When your alarm went off this morning or you woke up and you realized that today was the day to go to church, you thought, oh, yeah, here we go. It's never natural for us to sing somebody else's praises, but but when you you come, it's just, you just aren't into it. There's people around you and they appear to be happy, they appear to be enjoying themselves, and you're just... Here, um, maybe you have this vague sense in your life that the energy that you're investing, uh, when you do invest it in following Christ, is, isn't just worth, it's not worth the effort. It's not producing anything in your life. It's not producing any discernible growth. You try praying and reading your Bible and it just feels like you're talking to the ceiling and you just find this confusing and uh, there's just nothing coming. Uh, and maybe, if, if the truth be told, you're, you're slipping a l- little bit. There's television shows you got in the habit of watching that you really wouldn't have watched had you been paying too close attention, or jokes that you're laughing at that you really shouldn't think are funny. This is actually a good time of year to talk about spiritual malaise. Um, it matches the season perfectly. We just passed, not too long ago, a couple of weeks, Blue Monday. Have you heard of Blue Monday? Blue Monday is supposed to be the most depressing day of the year. It happens at the end of January, um, and uh, it, all the Christmas decorations are gone, all the lights are put away, and all you have left from Christmas is the credit card bill that is due now. You owe the celebrations that you had that are well over. It's a good time to talk about spiritual malaise. And I have a good place in the Bible that I want to take you for this discussion. I want you to turn to me in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, if you would. Now, Malachi is right at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. The easiest way to find the book of Malachi is to go to Matthew and turn left. So find Matthew or Mark or Luke or John and go left just a little bit. And Malachi is right there at the end of the Old Testament, right before the New Testament. 
Um, and uh, the reason that Malachi is perfect for us to consider this morning is I've been talking about spiritual malaise and perhaps I've been describing you, but I have also been talking about the conditions that these believers, these followers of God, these Israelites are experiencing too. And I've been talking about the conditions that these people face when God sent them a prophet named Malachi. Uh, we have before us uh, the uh, open, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi was the last prophet to speak before 400 years of silence from God. And this is the book that God gave His people to bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament to carry them, to carry them through, <laughs> through those years in anticipation of when Christ would come. <coughs> now, before we look specifically at the text, what I want to do this morning is I want to set it in its context. I want to introduce you to the book. That's what we normally do uh, when we start a, a book, uh, a look at a new book. We're going to talk about the history of it a little bit. Then, in a few minutes, we're going to look at the first five verses of Malachi 1. But first, let's set it in its context. This book is at the end of the Old Testament, so everything that you know from the Old Testament has already passed. All these people have, have experienced and seen in their history, their people's history, everything you know about the Old Testament. You can run down your list. It's all behind them. Uh, Abraham. The man from God who received the great promises that his descendants would be God's special people. He's come and he's gone. Uh, Moses, who led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of Egypt, and who gave them God's law that served as their national constitution. Uh, Moses, uh, he, he died about 1,500 years before Malachi was born. The judges have come and gone. Ehud and Samson have passed into history. The kings and the prophets are gone. David and Solomon and Ahab and Samuel and Elijah and Elisha, they're gone. Their lives are enshrined in the memory of these people. They're enshrined in their holy books, but they don't live anymore. And they have been exiled too. In fulfillment of the promises that God has made, God's people who refuse to obey Him have been taken from this land that God promised to Abraham. Uh, it was a conversation I heard about several years ago. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was uh, participating in the Constitutional Convention. And as he was leaving Independence Hall, a woman came up to him and said, Mr. Franklin, Mr. Franklin, what kind of government have you given us? And Ben Franklin replied, a republic if you can keep it. Have you ever heard those lines? Well, uh, uh, God, God, what have you promised Israel? I've promised them a land if they can keep it. And they would keep it by obeying God's word, by following God's law. And they failed miserably and they were exiled from the land. But in fulfillment of the promises, they have come back. Uh, God promised and, and the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Amos had promised that after they returned to their land, God's people would have worldwide influence and, and great wealth and peace and prosperity. And that's not what happened to them. They came back to the land and they were poor and they were neglected and they were oppressed. And by Malachi's day, most of the people have figured if God doesn't really care about us, then we don't really care about God. Uh, their, their souls were, were filled with gray slush. <laughs> they were stuck in the middle of February, spiritually. 
Uh, they they were they were sloppy in their worship and they were uh, neglecting God's word and they were faithless in their marriages and they were lazy in their giving. Um, if I could use another word picture to describe Malachi other than the book of Fe- uh, than the month of February, I would say that the people have calluses, they have calloused hearts. Um, they're they're hard, um, and God sent them a prophet named Malachi, who is at times a sharp instrument to cut away that hard, dead skin on their hearts. Um, sometimes Malachi is sarcastic and caustic and harsh. Uh, like a surgeon's knife should be sharp. Uh, you can see that. Look in Malachi verse one, uh, chapter one, verse ten. You see some of the sharpness here in this book. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors, so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. God says, just. Stop worshiping me. It's such a mess and you care so little about it. Just give it up and lock the doors of the temple and go home. Next week we'll spend some time talking about what would make God want to our church to close. What, would, what, would, what condition would be in our congregation that would make God say, oh, just stop, please, just stop. This is a hard book. Um, it, it's biting. So you may be surprised today at at what we're going to see in the first few verses of chapter 1. We've set the book in its context. We've talked about these people being disappointed with God. If God doesn't care about us, why should we care about Him? And now what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of our time in Malachi 1, 1 through 5. And basically these verses tell us how God awakens disappointed followers. What does God say to people who are frustrated with him because he doesn't appear to be keeping his promises and are frustrated with themselves and their lives are kind of falling apart because they're not following this God they're not sure they want to trust. How does God awaken followers like that? If, if your soul is flatter than usual or if you feel like you're following Christ through a sludgy, gray mess, what does God want you to know today? It's a very important passage of Scripture, and and I think it has the potential to change the trajectory of your spiritual life. So, listen this morning. Here are three ways that God awakens His disappointed followers. Number one, God confirms His love. God confirms His love. Um, Look with me here at verse 1, Malachi 1. Actually, just verse 1 is just introduction. An oracle... The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. God says to his people, I have loved you. This seems like a strange place to begin, doesn't it? Um, Is this where you would start with people who are disobedient and disrespectful? I love you. I know they're disrespectful because they immediately say to God, well, how? How? But you ask, how have you loved us? This is not a natural place to begin. This is strange. Why would God begin by saying, I love you? Uh, imagine that you're driving down the road here and you're hurrying because you're, you're going to be late and, and you see all of a sudden flashing lights behind you. Oh, great. So you pull over and, and the policeman stops behind you and you begin to play in your mind what is going to happen. 
what's he going to say? How much is this going to cost me? I'm really going to be late now. wonder if there's any way I'm going to be able to get out of this. Um, uh, there's a woman who's a part of our church, one of our missionaries actually, and um, I won't tell you her name, but her initials are Mary Brubaker, and she told me once that she's been pulled over several times and has yet to get a ticket. That's not going to happen to you. You're sitting there, and the police are behind you. He's going to come. What are you going to have to do here? You, you kind of hope that you weren't actually going as much over the speed limit as your speedometer said. You hope his, his equipment is a little faulty or at least more accurate in your favor than your speedometer is. What's going to happen? So he walks up to you, uh, asks you to roll down your window, and he looks at you in, as you're sitting there, and he says to you, you know what? I really care about you. Um, the reason I became a police officer is I, because I love the people in my community and I am committed to your safety and your well-being and I want you to enjoy your trip today. I, I am committed to you. In fact, the police officer says to you, I want you to know I have loved you. Would that make you wonder what was going on? Hmm. Uh, imagine you give a command to your children. You say to them, your room is a mess. Clean your room. And, and after an hour, you come back and nothing is put away. In fact, it looks worse. What are you going to say to them? I imagine that the first words out of your mouth are not going to be, I love you. Or if they are the first words that come out of your mouth, their mouth it might be like this. I love you, but you're driving me crazy right now. And if they say to you, at that moment in time, well, how have you loved us? You might be inclined to say, you know I love you because you're not dead right now for asking me that question. <laughs> right? Is this where you would start with people who are disobedient and rebellious and don't really care about you? Would you begin by saying, I love you? <laughs> Maybe there's something here in Malachi that I don't understand Maybe there's something that my children need to hear from me more often. See, um, if you spend time reading this book, you realize that this is where God always starts, isn't it? For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. We love him because he first loved us. God demonstrates how much he loves us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The, the, the Apostle Paul says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. When Jesus came, John 1 says, he came full of grace upon grace upon grace. Isn't this how God always begins with people who are rebellious and disobedient and disrespectful? I mean, the Bible is clear about our natural condition before God. We are not, in any sense of the word, before Him, lovable people. In fact, God describes us as His enemies. We've fallen far short of His standards. I don't even meet my own standards. Do you live up to your own standards for how you live? I watch, uh, I, uh, I read, uh, I, I don't read enough in the right types of, I sleep too much, I waste too much time. I don't live up to my own standards, and I certainly don't live up to God's standards. 
He made this world, this perfect world, and I pollute it every day with my choices to disregard him and disobey him. And I don't deserve God's love. I deserve his wrath. But when God speaks, he says, I am rich, rich, rich in mercy. Uh, This is astounding. This is an astounding place that God begins speaking into slushy souls. I love you. That should awaken disappointed followers. You're the objects of God's love. He set his love upon you. That didn't ring true, though, for these people. And uh, maybe it doesn't ring real true for you either. Yeah, God loves me, sure. But if God loves me, why is my life such a mess? Why am I so unhappy? Why are things so blah, so bland, so empty? And if you've asked that question, let's move on to the second way that God awakens disappointed followers. Number one, he he confirms his love. Number two, God clarifies his long-term commitments. He clarifies his long-term commitments. Now, let's start reading in verse 2 again, and we'll read down through verse 4. Look at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? God's answer. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. This is a strange and challenging passage. Um, This is actually a a passage that confronts us with some deep biblical and theological issues. We're going to look at the details. We're going to look at the trees here in a minute. But I want to talk about the forest first so we don't get lost. What God is saying here is he is reminding the people of his long-term commitment. They say to God, how have you loved us? And God says, I loved you from the very beginning and I will love you to the very end and beyond. My love for you is long-term, long-range. I think that's one of the reasons that they felt so bereft from God. Why they feel that He doesn't really care about them is, is that their vision is too small. They're thinking about this, just this tiny moment in their lives. They're not thinking widely enough or broadly enough about God's love. In uh, uh, one of his books, Paul Tripp says that, that sin, one of the things that sin does is that sin shrinks. This alienation from God is that it shrinks our world down so that we live only for ourselves and we think only about ourselves and what we're experiencing at this very moment. And Malachi 1, in Malachi 1, God says, oh, my, my love is, is broad and long. The road between my house and Kathy's house when we were dating and engaged, our, our, our driveways, uh, the driveway of her parents' house and my parents' house was 50 miles, uh, 50 miles exactly that distance. And the route that you drive from Perry, New York to Cheektowaga is uh, Route 20A. It's one of the, the paths you can take. And it winds its way through uh, the hills of western New York. It's a beautiful drive. 
uh, eagle, up huge, uh, long, long hills and down into valleys and up and up again. And, and if you're on the top, you can look and you can see for miles and you can see towns nestled uh, in the valleys and you can see windmills uh, that they've put on farmers' fields and you can see wooded lots and you can see farms, beautiful drive. Now, if you're in the valley and you're going up the hill, sometimes all you can see is incline. And you can just hear your engine going, trying to get you up. Sometimes you have this broad, long view. Sometimes all you can see is the 10 feet in front of you to climb the hill. These people, all they're looking at is they're looking at that 10 feet uphill, that steep incline. How are we going to make it? What are we going to do? And Malachi 1, God says, oh, look broad, look long. My love for you extends farther than you can see at this moment. Now, let's talk about how that works. Uh, God directs their attention back to the book of Genesis, to the womb of Abraham's daughter-in-law, Isaac's wife, Rebekah. Remember the promises that God received in Genesis 12. God says to Abraham, your descendants are going to be my special people. And that promise was generational. It went down from Abraham and then Isaac inherited that promise. And then Isaac's children, Isaac's son, would inherit that promise too. His older son, generally, uh, usually, his firstborn son. Uh, Rebecca, though, was pregnant with twins. And before birth, before either of them had done anything to deserve it or not deserve it, God chose Jacob. I choose Jacob to be the recipient of my blessing. The Israelites, um, who are Jacob's descendants, um, are the objects of God's unconditional sovereign love. Uh, Malachi is here talking about the doctrine of election, which is in the Bible all the way through the Bible. And one of the ways that I know that Malachi is talking about election here is because Paul quotes this verse, uh, Malachi 1-2, in Romans chapter 9 when he's talking about election. God, as the creator of the universe, has his, the right to set his affection on whoever he wishes. No one deserves God's love. Jacob didn't deserve it, nor did Esau, but God committed himself to Israel hundreds of years before this prophecy in Malachi was ever delivered. And his commitment to them is going to extend into the future as far as they can see. And after Jacob and Esau are born, you see the unfolding of their lives. You see God's relentless pursuit of Jacob and his family. Neither of these boys valued who God was and what promises God had given them. But you see in the Bible God wrestling with Jacob. He is going to win them with his loyal love. He's going to pursue these people. He's going to go after them, Jacob and his descendants. Esau has no interest in following God and his descendants have no interest in being God's people. And, and in fact, uh, the Edomites, uh, which are the descendants of Esau, um, spend their lives as Israel's closest and worst enemy. And by choice and inclination, they, they disobey God, they oppose God, and God opposes them. That's what he's talking about in this passage. Their property, their land, I've destroyed it. I've left it to jackals. And they're never going to rebuild it again. This is a hard passage because it connects us to two truths that run parallel through the Bible. God's unconditional sovereign love and his commitment to bless those he chooses. 
And you see in this passage too, human beings and their persistent rebellion against God, personified by the Edomites. We've got to hold those two things in tension. God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility. It's, it's difficult to hold these things together in your mind. And whenever we talk about election, we always raise questions that I can't answer perfectly well, but they're in the Bible. That's what the Scripture says. There's something, though, that's odd about this passage. God reminding them of His love from the, ba- from, from the beginning. There's something odd about this passage. Um, God reminds them of His love negatively. Did, did you notice that or did that dawn on you? Why did God say to, to Jacob, to the Israelites, I love you, and then demonstrate it by showing how He doesn't love Esau, the Edomites? You can picture it this way. Um, let's say a man and his wife are out for dinner eating, and the wife says to her husband, Do you really love me? Do you really love me? And the husband says, Do you see that woman over there? And she picks somebody in the restaurant. Do you see that woman over there? Yes. I never buy her a birthday present. I never take her out for dinner. I don't celebrate Christmas with her. I don't know when her uh, anniversary is. Um, I'm not going to... Uh, care for her when she's sick. I'm not going to grieve for her when she dies. Um, uh, that woman over there, I don't love her. Why would God do something like that to the people? I've loved you, Jacob. Jacob says, how? Uh, Israel, how? How have you loved us? Well, I don't love Esau. You see that nation over there? I don't love them. Their, their, their country is destroyed. They'll never be able to rebuild. I don't love them. Why would God do that? I'm not sure. Here's a suggestion. I think God answered their question negatively because they already had all of the positive answers. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos had already promised great things for them. The temple's going to be rebuilt. You'll be prosperous and positive in the land. He had already promised those positive things, and that has not affected the people. It's only when they see what they're not like, you're not like the Edomites, you're not unable to return to your land, and you're not unable to rebuild uh, because of God's love. He's trying to show them what they have by, by pointing out others who don't have what they do. Now, it's not difficult, I don't think, to talk about God's long-term, sovereign, unconditional love through the lens of the New Testament. Um, there's, there's easy ways for us to find ourselves in Malachi 1. Paul writes in Ephesians that if you're a follower of Christ, it's because God has loved you in eternity past. Before the world came into being, God knew you and called you to be his own. Uh, if you're Christ, it's because of God's intention uh, that, that uh, um, His Son would die for you 2,000 years ago on the cross, that, that Jesus would bear the penalty that you owe God because of your sin. And in the future, God is going to make you like His Son. He's going to transform your body and you're going to live with God forever and, and you'll discover that in His right hand are pleasures evermore. If you're here today and you look at your life and you say there is no evidence in my life of God's love today, can I remind you that you are the recipient of God's great grace yesterday and the holder of God's great promises for tomorrow? 
take a long look. Take a look at God's love over the decades and over the centuries. His love over the long term calls for your loyalty today. See, God's love should change how you think about uh, your life today. It is really hard when you're climbing a hill in in your life to think about uh, long-term love. If you're in the middle of grief, if you're in the middle of chemotherapy, if you're in the middle of unemployment, it's really hard to remember God's long-term plans. But this is just a season. Wherever you are, it's just a season in the whole process of what God is doing. Just a season in the process of His great work of reconciling you to Himself and making you like Him. Will we expand your vision? Um, will you think about uh, the conflict that you're having with your roommate in light of God's long-term plans for you? Where the towel is on the floor doesn't matter really much, does it, in light of that? Will you think about your uh, uh, house and the things that you don't like about it when you walk in the door and you turn the light on and you look at your house and you say, oh, that drives me crazy. I hate this wallpaper. I hate this color. I hate this floor plan. Will you think about your house in, in light of lo- God's long-term plans for you to make you like Jesus Christ? Um, will you think about uh, that when you balanced your checkbook this week and, and you wondered when you were ever going to get things straight? Were you thinking about God's long-term plans in your life? God loves you. And his commitment to you is long term. That's how God awakens disappointed followers, by clarifying this. Now, there's one more thing for you to see here in the text. Uh, one more way that God awakens disappointed followers. Point number three, how does God awaken disappointed followers? He calls us to celebrate his greatness. He calls us to celebrate his greatness. This is really Malachi's goal. This is what Malachi wants for you when you read chapter 1. Look at verse 5. You will see it. You will see my work with your own eyes and you will say, Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. So the prophet's words are recorded in the Bible to bring us to this point so that you will say, God is great. To this exclamation everywhere, God is great. God is great. Great is His sovereign love. Great is His perfect justice. Great is His righteous judgment. Great is His power and great is His wisdom. He's great everywhere. He's great here in the United States. He's great in Israel. He's great in Washington, D.C. He's great in Cairo. He's great in my life. He's great in our church. He's great among people who reject Him and rebel against Him. Great is the Lord. Now, you may not see that today in your life. Evidence is, is lacking here. But Malachi says, in light of that future that is sure and certain, will you celebrate God's greatness today? In light of what He's going to do, will you celebrate His greatness today? What we're going to discover in the next few weeks is that this long look that ends in God's exaltation It will change how you worship and it will change how you hear God's word and it will change how you relate to your spouse and it will change how you serve and how you give. Understand it, it's true. God's long-term love calls for our day-to-day devotion. Let's pray, shall we?
Father, I thank you for these men and women that are here this morning. And uh, doubtless there are uh, many in this room who are in the midst of a slushy season of life. Um, They're walking through deep valleys and they're wondering about your presence and about your provisions and about your promises. Father, I thank you that Malachi for us is a clear light in dim times. And I ask that you would, in the weeks that are to come, as we look in this book, would you clarify our vision and our understanding and remind us of the value of of following you wholeheartedly. Father, we thank you this morning for your long-term commitment to us. You love us from eternity past and you will into eternity future. Uh, Satisfy us today, we pray as the psalmist did, with your unfailing love. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.